I was actually listening um, to the interview that you did with Anthony Fontano, and there was a moment which I really appreciate. Um, you talk about a concert in 1996, maybe, at the Velvet Lounge in Chicago with Josh Abraham and mm -hmm. Chad Taylor, and you say that there was this moment that it was that as if it timed the stop or, you know, something happened in that moment. And, you know, especially after, you know, these two years of the pandemic or, you know, like where there was maybe not so much live music. And remembering and hearing this moment, it made me remember the kind of amazing moments, unique moments that music can bring. And, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, I guess I was not also, a, I was not a very good student at the school, but like them discovering improvisation and then have these very focused, intense moments that, that you know, made me feel alive or that I was worth or that, I, you know, there was something about the stake. So I don't know if you could talk a bit more about this moment and why was it import so important for you? Um, I would love to hear about this. Sure. Um... Yeah, that moment, I have not, I, s that moment has not yet happened again, which is interesting. I remember that moment quite well. It was almost like a quantum leap of some sort of time standing still in a way that felt so comforting and so welcoming and so... So just really in the moment, and I think it's one of the reasons I'm still trying to stay committed to some form of this music because I'm looking for that moment. I would I would love for that moment to happen a bit more often, and I and I really think that those moments. I really think that as sound explorer type people, you have to come really in touch with your inner world a bit, um, which is something, you know, the pandemic brought forward for a lot of people. You know, the, the only really dependable source of anything was more our inner worlds than all the things that were happening externally outside of illness. Um, and I think one of the reasons that moment also happened as a confluence of, of things, first of all, uh, Josh Abrams and Chad Taylor, I collaborated with them for quite a long time, and they were they were the first. They really supported my voice in in music, and it was no there was no weirdness or um, expectation of any kind of exchange, or they really just were so enthusiastic about my sound and my contribution. So I felt really comfortable and safe in that environment, as well as doing that uh, in Fred Anderson's club. Uh, Fred Anderson was also very supportive. I think the environment had a lot to do with it. Like there was just a comfort of being there in that place, in that space, being on that stage, which I had been on many times by that point. Um, Josh and I and Chad 
became the house band for a little while on Sundays. It was really fun, crazy and fun and all sorts of things. Um, but we also were very comfortable musically. We were collaborating in a way where we were writing music together. We were working out things together. So there was a sense of community that I think is the, it was the key to fostering that moment. Um, and that's, yeah. And so now, never really thought about it like that. I mean, what, how do you guys feel about community in Sonic Space? Yeah, I think after uh, all these couple of years, I, I, because for example, you were saying that uh, Bristol is a quite nice city and in, in my eight years of experience, uh, now here, I, I felt that it, it was amazing, but now it's a very hard work to reconstruct after all this sort of progressive fragmentation of our individuality uh, during the isolation, to reconstruct this sense of, as you were saying, being comfortable or being uh, part of something that it's it contains a sort of healing attitude when you are part of this community with with friends, when you are playing together, when you are attending gigs, etc. And there are different constraints that appear now. Very different constraints, like venues, for example, trying to run multiple nights per night in order to be profitable and navigate the uncertainty of the economic landscape, then individuals deciding to, I don't know, move outside the city because of life or because this, this, this massive change in our daily life provoke a lot of thought processes. And I, I really miss, as well as, as you I am like, with this sensation of looking forward for this sort of yeah, community being back together, etc. Like three or four weeks ago, we were in this festival Counterflows in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And I really had like a very, very good time. This feeling of being together again, being uh, part of this sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, yeah, communion with the with the music, uh, that that it's something that I was missing. I don't know about matching in Berlin. Yeah, well, I agree. I'm kind of going back and remembering. Yeah, I was working for many years in a book, so I was quite isolated and not going out so much. And now it's over. And now I'm just like I, I, I just want to go back to that moment of early days when I was discovering improvisation and improvising with friends in a quite intense and and I've been doing a bit of playing with some friends kind of we're a quartet and that feeling of playing together with people is one of the best things that I can think of I mean and playing live in front of an audience is, is just a kind of social richness that there is that uh, you know when you have missed it for quite some time you know I mean I, I, I just, I'm just like extremely appreciative of these moments understanding their importance 
and how yeah how important they are to keep one's own sanity and one's own you know like to 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 relate to each other so so you are not just kind of enclosed in your own thoughts uh, so it's I'm just kind of coming back to that moment so that's why I was so curious about you know the you know asking you about this specific moment because there is something so unique about it and it's difficult maybe to describe but once you feel it or once you've been going through there you you want to come back or at least follow it yeah it's almost beyond language i wish i could really i mean i didn't really understand how much also i've been taking that language for granted you know it really wasn't until covid i i can't imagine for younger musicians who were trying to start their ways into that community what that has to feel like right now even now even even though i think we're through the worst of it i hope um but i just remember all the risks that i was taking just wild just to kind of survive in the music in a creative life that would not have been possible um a few years ago or even i'm not even sure if some of those things are possible now and so i'm trying to i know i will get back to that moment but i also know that getting back th- that that particular moment that i talked about in that interview was very particular to that time and there is a very um There was a lot of freedom to that time that is just that I don't think will ever return in quite the same way from what from what we've seen. It there there it has a new sense of existing in the world that's just that's just in a different sense of risk that's just different. Um At that time of that moment, if I remember correctly, I was really broke and playing um I was I was you know, my mother used to call it Robin Peter to pay Paul economics to try to make, you know, things work and I was weaving things together between touring, teaching a little bit, working little odd jobs here and there. I I mean, I've worked every kind of under the table kind of odd job that's that's out there, legal under the table odd job, right? Um and that was a time where there was that where I really couldn't see the forecast. Like I I wouldn't have seen everything that's happened since that time for myself musically at that time. At that time it was just kind of scrambling for opportunities. I had not yet moved to New York. I was about to fairly soon. Um Well, no, not fairly soon actually. Yeah, there there was a a lot of uh, a lot of unknowns and so there's a lot of risk in those unknowns. 
But the risk now, and then the risk that I took, uh, I've done some really crazy things just to try to survive, you know, to try to be flexible in surviving in terms of a state of living, a state of being, a state of taking care of oneself, where you're just taking certain risks to try to balance, like, um, to balance things that later on you would have to balance in a different way. And the risks now that I see, I mean, I am slowly moving back into performance, for instance, because I feel musicians were expected to be on the front line uh, um, of kind of these virus experiments. You know, let's see how things, let's, you know, and a combination of musicians and promoters and festivals and venues, you know, well, let's just see if this works. Well, let's just see, which is okay in, in, on one side, but it's not okay on a whole other side because you're asking people to take a risk with their actual mortality. Um, you know, that's a different kind of risk. That's a very different kind. I mean, and taking risks with your mortality. I've been in car accidents on tours and things like this where, you know, things can happen. But this was some whole other silent death, right? Where this airborne sort of situation. So for me as a saxophonist who, you know, breath, the lung capacity, this idea that I could play in a enclosed space and breathe in a virus or breathe out a virus onto other people, I was absolutely terrifying. And, um, and now I find it's going to take me a little while to work through some of the anxieties that I've picked up during this period of me like, okay, well, you know, it, we're sort of over that and I'm triple vaccinated and if I could get quadruple vaccinated I will do I will do whatever it is to take and I'm so grateful to be here like I still I wake up some days and I'm going wow okay I'm here I'm still here and and I have friends who didn't make it during during the COVID period right and uh who should still be here, who would have wanted to be here, right? And so I'm also trying to just weave through the guilt of that, of trying to be like, okay, well, I need to work even harder because these are people, someone who I can um, who I can point out immediately is the writer Greg Tate, for instance. Um, though Greg's passing is not COVID related, I don't, I don't know the particulars. But the fact of, again, of, of he was someone who was so busy and had so much on his plate that he was doing, not only for his own work, but advocating for other people. And so it's like, oh, okay, we have to pick that up. We have to continue that sort of thing. Um, not to mention the number of music elders that got uh, knocked out by the virus early on. I think it's a long list. Of, of people where it seemed like the virus was taking out a generation of folks, right? Um, so, so I'm now just trying to move back up to speed, but I find my, I'm slower right now and I'm trying not to panic at the slowness because the way everything shut down 
you know, it just, just slowed down. And again, for me, digging into my internal world was the only way to push through, to push through these periods. So I don't know what other people, people did. And I don't know how you guys feel about that guilt, but I do feel it. Yeah, I think everyone is different and it's impossible to generate a sort of homogeneous response to that. I, I, I think it's, it's impossible because our psyche is completely uh, dependent on many, many contexts. I know many people that they never experience uh, a life that resembles for example, the life of a touring musician. So how, how on earth this person could feel the experiences that you have been describing. Right, <laughs> right. This. And, and then they, they, they had, for example, in the, in the context of uh, higher education or uh, in the context of being part of uh, a larger group of workers in a factory, many additional responses appear that maybe we we don't know so it's it's very difficult but it's interesting because we have to develop this sort of anti anti fragility responses and being back to yeah a world that it's similar but different but yeah it's um it's very difficult to make a i I think a sort of generalization about their response. But it makes me very sad uh, how many people were left behind because of, yeah, deaths, but as well because of the psychological response to a sort of, um, I don't know how to describe this, unprecedented in our times moment. Yeah, and it it really brought forth, you know, Yeah, for me, also, as a as a black body in the world with ovaries and watching the way in which, I mean, medical racism is real, at least in America. And so I can't, I like, I'm still trying to work through the terror that I felt, be like, okay. And I also, I'm asthmatic. So it was a combination of all these things and going, all right. And also, oh, I don't represent the model of the person who will get saved first. At least. And so what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? And, you know, I, both of my parents have walked on and they both had cancers and way too early on. Um, my dad was 62. My mother was 52. My dad was 64, I think, 63, 64, but both cancers. And I've watched them deal front-facing with the medical system in the U.S., for instance. And it was terrifying to watch. It didn't matter amount of resources. My father had more resources than my mother did, but it didn't matter because I, I just saw the treatment that they received was just not treatment of care or saving so when you combine this for me combining that experience with this experience that we're still sort of living through it's a it's a mental game and then thinking about music and freelance music 
on on the one hand, I also did feel a sense of privilege of being like, okay, well, you know, I have a friend who's a musician who also works at a grocery store and he was considered a frontline worker. He had to go, you know, um, and so the privilege of working as a freelancer and watching things disappear and going, okay, at least I don't have to do that. Or at least I'm not doing this. And I can just sort of cocoon um, a little bit. I mean, financially, it's very stressful, but still, nobody's expecting me. Or if you think about our friends, or, or I don't know amongst you guys who have families, are, are people who are raising children during that time. Like the terror, like uh, Mateen, I can't. I could, the terror of having to protect family and children during that time while also having the weight of art life things, it's enough to send anybody over the edge. So I'm concerned about the mental health of arts makers at this point of this coming out. And I've seen different versions of that. Some people who I, they seem, everything seems okay. And some I'm nervous who are not going to be able to make it over, completely over the hump. And some like me who are still kind of stuck in a, music is a social, it's social. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're so, it's bodies in a room. And, and, uh, and I've experimented with the, there was one year I chose to just be a composer. And I've learned that I don't like that. It's fun, but it's not, I don't like that completely. I like bodies in a room. We're doing things together. We're working through something together. Or just, you know, the afterhangs of music gigs or the, you know, just those things are really important. And, um, <sighs> yeah, and contain like energetic resources that you mm -hmm. won't find anywhere else. Yeah. And no, and people don't understand. Yeah. yeah, and what you'd mentioned, mental health. I mean, they they are, act as medicine towards you know this. You know, they you can share, you can you know share in this relax after the gigs. You know, there is a kind of you know socializing where you had an experience that is powerful and it's yeah, uh, it's a very special type of sociability that. You know, it's it's very healthy. I think, or you know, one of the healthiest that I have encountered in my life. And yeah, but I think the mental health issue is, um, yeah, that's another form of pandemic that I don't know if this society is ready. Well, no, I, I know for a fact that it's not ready to deal with this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm writing about, like, I'm writing some essays about my experience just to kind of, because I would like to be able to talk about it, but I also find it hard because it's, I feel so, I feel traumatized by the experience, honestly, and it's, um, You know, just thinking about the beginning periods of where you couldn't even walk down the street. And if you saw someone walking towards you, you're trying to create as much distance as possible, right? 
And this idea that where no matter wherever the, in the world we were, uh, you're walking around in, tra in constant trauma. The only thing I could think about is what, what it must feel like to be in war of some kind, like just in just being in a community where there's constant trauma going on and you, and everyone is traumatized. There's not a single, I don't care what the class strata of the person is. There's not a single person not feeling some sort of brunt of this, maybe some feeling more of the brunt than others, but still, and that's a very strange, um, strange existence. Uh, and, you know, sound and music, it's been very exciting to see, to understand how much people were craving art and music and sound and, and how you see that in some of the, I think one of the first festivals I played was La Guess Who, um, and just the fervor of excitement of people wanting to be in a room together just hearing music. Um, but even the trauma of that where that festival, they tried to shut that festival down in the middle because numbers had, you know, gone insane. Um, or just the trauma of being with, you know, visiting friends or visiting family and having to, I've had to make certain decisions where there's certain family members who are too old for me to visit uh, because I traveling so much and testing so much and who's to say I'm not bringing a virus into their home, you know, things that, like, it's just wild this. And I, I just, I hope in maybe a decade we'll be able to come together with our stories in a different sort of way and, and a sort of like, remember when, you know? But I think that's, that's the crazy thing about uh, this reality that it's like we are sifting into one thing to the other big thing, let's say now the war in Ukraine, you know, it's, and there is no, no time. It's like things are happening and maybe this these things are happening at such a pace and such a time that this space for reflection it seems almost impossible necessary but almost impossible because something else comes that is so intense yet again and the whole media around it and social media and everything intensifies even more so i'm wondering if that um thing that you mentioned about freedom in 96 that feeling of freedom you know comes from the possibility that there was some maybe more space for you know experiencing something specific there was more of a space while now it's like the whole reality is changing in such an intense and kind of brutal way that there's it's like you're constantly against the kind of present pressing you into you know it's now 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 in such an intense way that you cannot have the space for for maybe you know uh, perform that kind of freedom or, or you know a bit of more room to you know um, experience things with other people 
in a specific way. Or, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's connected what you mentioned about the freedom at that specific time in Chicago. And maybe now, I guess we're also losing other forms of, of freedom with other things, you know, with other, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of social media or, you know. Yeah, I mean, because 96, what were we talking about? Friendster at that time? Like, what was internet? Was MySpace? Was my, no, no, like, 96 yeah. was the, uh, that's when I started to encounter internet. So, yeah, email. I remember yeah, email. Um, email. That's yeah. all, not pretty much. I had this one friend, we would, we would write long emails. They would, they were so long. And now at this time, like, nothing makes my nervous system shake like opening my email <laughs> inbox, right? <laughs> and so it's just so it's like wow okay right 96 email myspace showed up maybe 97 98 i can't remember and um and that was a period where for me for me i had come out of university and i had come out of a university program where people consistently told me that i that i needed to find something else to do that music wasn't what it was I was supposed to be doing however it's that's why Josh and Chad were so important and the Velvet Lounge was so important and other things that were going on in Chicago at the time like uh, Vaughn Freeman's Tuesday night jam session and Lynn Halliday had a Monday night jam session somewhere and then there was and around that time 90, Rude Rush Mahatanpa had showed up in Chicago and that was like People have no idea as a saxophonist what that was like. And yet there was these other satellites like, you know, I said I wouldn't say things that I didn't want to say, but it's fine because this is an important part of the structure of history. But Steve Coleman, you know, had come out of Chicago. So there was that, and I have a lot of issues with Steve, but I can go, I will go on record saying that. Uh, but I also have a lot of hope for, you know, people can grow and change and maybe come into um, a clear definition of how to take responsibility for certain things. But there were these people, like, I'll never forget. I The first time I heard Rush Mahanpa, the saxophonist play, he had come, where he had come from, I can't remember but he was in a traditional setting. It was at like a traditional concert. They, I think they were playing like Basie or something. And he stood up and took this solo that sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before in a live moment. Not understand, at that time, I did not understand his connection to Steve Coleman and Embase and this whole thing. But I remember being blown away of like, whoa, what kind of sound is that? What is going on? And I remember the criticism. He got so much criticism for that, where people were saying things like, oh, you know, you have to play, like, to improvise, you have to improvise for the tradition that you're playing in. And he was not about it. And I just, and so between that exposure to him and then exposure to the Chicago jam session culture, where I kept coming in touch with musicians who could who could do some things better than me, but they were so encouraging. 
while also having the cognitive dissonance of having to go back into these this university system and have the weight this kind of african-american weight of well i have to finish college like i can't like this this degree is not just for me it's for a whole lineage of people that made it possible like i have to so i have to keep engaging with these people um that 96 moment was so important because it's felt safe like i felt really safe in um in the environment that i was in in order to have that moment and so now Remembering that sound is a healing space, no matter how, how, no matter how we work with it, is one of the most vital things I think all sound makers need to remember for right now. And the, you know, the speed, my heart breaks for the people in Ukraine. Um, my heart breaks for uh, the people in Afghanistan. My heart breaks for uh, people in Ethiopia. I mean, I mean, there are multiple wars going on right now, but Ukraine is particular because Russia is, it's horrifying. I, I can't, and how we, we haven't had a chance to breathe of, okay, now we're over this pandemic. Now we, we can kind of over this pandemic. No, I mean, can you, I can't imagine for people of Ukraine the mental strata that they're having to jump through with all of the madness going on, no room to have a moment to be like, okay. And in all the coverage of Ukraine, no one's talking about COVID in Ukraine. You're not hearing a single thing about numbers, COVID. You're not, of all the, you know, the many people who jumped, supposedly jumped up from other areas of the world to go and fight. Nobody's talking about COVID and vaccines. So when that stuff is happening in my head, I'm going, wait, did we really just live through this thing? Or was it not real? It's real. Because I'm triple vaccinated. And I don't even know it's in the vaccine. And I will continue to get vaccinated because I I don't want what they say this thing is. But we've got these war... Putin, you know, that guy has the nuclear codes. Like, what is, how is any of this um, making any sense? And the way in which society is very different from 96 and that our, the attention economy is so crazy um, because of quote unquote social media, which social media for me has always been, oh, these are tracking. This is, this is a way of organizing tracking people. And I... This is, you know, this is a digital census. You know, this is, you know, sold to us in a way that we're, this is how we can connect. Um, but at the start of the pandemic, for instance, I quit all of my social media because the scroll through was just sending my nervous system through the roof. Cause you never know what you're gonna see. The algorithm has perpetually felt racist to me on different platforms. Like perpetually, it just never, um, like I used to have a Twitter where I would try to, I saw it as an interesting resource of making sure that people 
politically were engaged with what was really going on in America, what is really blah, blah, blah. But I noticed the algorithm would continually, continually push things towards me that would stress me out because I was, you know, and it was like, wow, okay, I don't think I want to be on this hamster wheel. Um, so, and now what I see with friends with some of the algorithms, it's like scrolling through and seeing people's kind of curated lives and it looks like they're doing well. Oh, why are they doing well? Why am I not doing as well? Like the different things that that, the negativity that that can foster. Um, well, at the same time, you know, the flip side is remembering that social media can also amplify voices that are not getting heard. Yeah, during the Arab Spring. It yeah. That's what brought me to Twitter was the Arab Spring because the news that I was getting was making no sense. And then you got on the ground reports from people who are living through this thing. It's like, okay, this is, and being able to connect with musicians and art makers from around the world. Like, okay, so there's a, there's a way to deal with these things, but you also have to keep in the back of your mind that the creators of these platforms They base these things on um, the uh, dopamine levels, right? Gambling machines. <laughs> Now we all understand how it's easy for some people to go spend months in Vegas or wherever they go to gamble, right? Because of the dopamine spike or, or Atlantic City or, you know, other places. Um, and so I think there's a, I think there's a mediation that, That has to happen. And I don't, I hope not to be like a full on Luddite, but I think you have to be very careful with these sources of information. Yeah. And do you have a take about this massive change now with Elon Musk buying Twitter? Oh, I have. So just hearing, I was reading the Times today and, and hearing him say things like, you know, I'm going to bring, bring free speech back to Twitter. It's like, oh, that's signal. That's like signaling for, oh, I'm going to bring back all the races, all the homophobes, all the xenophobes. All, we're, I'm going to bring all those people back in the manner of, of free speech. All the, all the wrong disinformation that was going around about COVID, for instance. All the... Um, I, I just... No one person should have that much money, number one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's number one, yeah. That's number one. Like, no one person. The amount of money that that person has that he just spent on Twitter could eradicate homelessness in the U.S. within, like, two days. Yeah, and probably big parts of Europe as well. Right? On the right? top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and one of the things that I saw in New York recently was the amount of people on the street with mental illness right now is surpassed levels that I've never seen before. Like there's a surpass or you hear people talk about uh, Skid Row in L.A. Like the United States of America, supposedly one of the richest countries in the world. no. Not when you see the dis the wide disparities of this so-called democracy um, and the selling, you know, billionaires, 
you know, playing around with this money and buying seats to go to space. You know, it's, I don't see good things. I think Elon Musk also is, and don't get me started on Elon, because isn't Elon Musk is a South Africaner, right? He's, right. So there's a whole other, there are all sorts of things to dig into there in terms of thinking about legacy. Um, I see very bad, I see, you know, Twitter from when I was there had a very cesspool quality also. And it's just going to get out of hand. He's going to bring, I guarantee you, Trump will be back on Twitter. Um, just all this disgustingness is going to be amplified. I don't think he... I don't really think he understands the plight of people who do not have the same sort of resources that he and his buddies continue to have. Um, and not to mention, I mean, the amount of discrimination lawsuits coming out of Tesla in the last couple years, this is not a person who should be leading a democratic, quote unquote, democratic platform. Um, I, I think that there is a relationship between the mental health problems that we are having and the kind of fake values that liberal societies are promoting. You know, this idea of equality or, um, you know, democracy, you know, it's just like, it's so in itself increasingly more and more rotten to the core, you know, and, you know, like, I mean, and this, you know, I, th that I think there are really struggles like Black Lives Matter and many others that are really showing that, you know, those structures, you know, that, that, that they are rotten to the core, but nevertheless, these values are still, you know, people still hold to these values because maybe there is no much else to hold towards. To So, you know, we've been going through very difficult times, but hearing, you know, what we are saying and seeing what is in front of us, I can only see that they're going to get worse, you know, even though we're talking about music and the healing power and there's, you know, things and people are trying to do things, but at the general level, it's just things are crumbling and, 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 yeah, and the people who have in power, you know, it's no way in hell that they are going to give up their power of their privilege so yeah I don't know if if I I share this this like the um, sort of pessimistic outlook but what I see and, and the thing that I was going to mention that I think it's relevant is that there is a problem in this dichotomy in which m most of Uh, as most of humans on planet Earth receive this uh, present which looks and feels like a dystopia, like lockdown, algorithms deciding which sort of films we are going to watch along at home on Netflix, uh, receiving our groceries 
in the doorstep, blah, blah, blah. All this sensation of, okay, this is proper dystopia. But then uh, these edge lords, they are actually ruining utopian projects. So you have Jeff Bezos, you have Elon Musk engaging with Neuralink or with SpaceX, etc. So uh, how on earth well, or the, all the crypto sort of uh, DAOs that they engage with more um, positive uh, outlooks of solar punk whatsoever. But how it is possible that this massive cross-phase occur and we, we receive dystopia and these guys is as if they are having their time building their own utopias for them. But it's very weird. It's capitalism. It's, it's pure and yeah. simple capitalism. <laughs> no, it's capitalism. It's, it's, it's capitalism at its core. It's uh, it's the building blocks of quote-unquote democracy at its core, right? And it's... But what I've learned... What I've learned about democracy from my time being oversteeped is that it's, you know, they say liberty and justice for all. It's, it's liberty and justice for some. And it's, and... The, the crux of, I think the crux, one of the biggest cruxes of democracy and capitalism is making sure that the people are actually not as informed as they could be. And then it just creates this... Um, this continual breakdown of people just shouting into the void because they don't have the same information uh, that that they're working with nor are treated in 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 the same ways, right? Um, I mean, and I've seen it in music. You know, when I give even pre-pandemic, giving talks at at colleges and stuff, and at music colleges and stuff, and students asking things about their, using using capitalistic language like brand, talking about, you know, how do they, how can they work on their brand or what is it? That's not something I ever thought about in that language. Maybe I did think about it and just didn't use those words. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it's really, and, and social media, Again, the plus side of social media being able to, you know, again, seeing what's going on in Ukraine and 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 what's going on in Russia and how Russian people are not being given some of the full information, so they say, right? But but seeing the fissures that are leaking through of trying to show the Russian people, no, actually, this here is what's happening, right? Um, so that's, that's the power of social media, but social media is, a, those are marketing tools owned by these huge corporate, uh, interests that are just feeding the people back into that capitalist machine and, and turning, wanting musicians and artists to basically be mini capitalists, um, that I, I struggle, you know, and I say all these things to say, but I also participate 
in these, I do, I, I wish I didn't have to, but I do participate in these quote unquote markets as someone, you know, selling items as we all, you know, we're selling items, selling performances, selling, but I think artists and musicians still have the power to shape terms, you know, what goes on sale, what, uh, my biggest problem with jazz music has always been the ways in which jazz expects, um, musicians to kind of place themselves on an auction block of sorts. Um, and maybe pop music is that too. Experimental music, I don't know. I feel like there's a little more agency in, you know, what's for sale. What's for, we're, it's, we're talking about the work. But social media has also skewed things in that I was talking to a young musician the other day who was like, I just feel like I have to place my lifestyle online to get certain opportunities. And you're like, well, no, you don't have to do that. You just, you know, make your work and engage in the ways that you want to engage. But I, I don't care where you went to eat or who you went to hang out with or that you're on a plane traveling somewhere or that I just want to know about your work. But people are being made not to feel that way. They're being made to feel that in order to engage in these systems, every bit of themselves has to be sacrificed. Uh, I, you know, when we're talking, well, uh, just one thing. I don't think only the Russians are getting, you know, kind of receiving propaganda. I'm kind of... I, they, kind of mainstream media, I think in the West, they are also, the way that they're describing this war is, uh, I, I get also, uh, it gives me the creeps. But but I think in regards as an antidote to this attention economy that we are kind of criticizing with the social media and everything, I think your records, the, the Coin Coin series, the chapter series, they are an antidote, you know, because they are so rich. And when you said the necessity of trying to understand our histories or that we don't get, you know, that like, well, you know, that, you know, our is obviously, you know, you're dealing with, a, you know, the African-American tradition, which is, you know, I, I cannot, you know, but like the differences of uh, and complexities of different histories that you are able to bring in the records um, is is so powerful, complex, and layered that you know I think it requires another temporality. You know, it's uh, they work effectively. You know, when you hear them first. But they have the potential because they are so rich that they, they stay there and they can, you know, I think for the listener, it's just, it gives them so much that, you know, to digest and to, to not only to digest, but also to open up possibilities that things can be otherwise or records can, you know, have a much richer or they, they can really synthesize in poetic ways, 
extremely complex and you know traumatic you know uh, uh, stories and you know like histories and so so I, I am you know I, I'm just simply deeply impressed with your practice but you know especially the coin coin series the way that it is an antidote to many of the kind of uh, problems that we are discussing of our and unfortunately it's not common to find similar examples no. of the use of historical materials and documents in this particular way Oh, that's interesting. No, I really appreciate that. It's um, and yeah, I, uh, Martin, I completely agree with you. Like, I don't get me started on media propaganda in the midst of of war, and don't get me started on American people not having a clear understanding of why. America is all of a sudden so invested, but not invested in what's happening in Ukraine. Like there's some very particular, that's not being spread around. What's being spread around, what what the American people are getting, which is really interesting to think about is, you know, it's pushing these buttons of patriotism and pushing these buttons of, you know, uh, you know, the quote unquote right looking foreigners to the, to the American media eyes. I, I could, it cre completely creeps me out and I, I struggle. The coin coin records, I struggle um, because, again, here I am, you know, criticizing these systems, but the coin coin records are also the history that I talk about on the coin coin records wouldn't have been pos been made possible without the systems that I'm criticizing, right? In a sense, uh, the history of the. And, and I'm talking about the ways in which um, musicians are forced in some genres to promote the their own self-image in order to have a stake in sound. But I'm using the images of other people to do that. And, and as almost as a sense of protection for myself, Like an, a sense of amplification of their stories that I think is very important, but it's also a small sense of protection for myself. Um, you will never see me on the cover of a coin coin record, maybe chapter 12. <laughs> maybe perhaps, maybe that will happen, you know, but I've, I have so much material that I, I just, I feel like these histories are so important in that they're a good reminder of the cyclical nature of history, um, the cyclical nature of remembering how things things begin and end and how historical moments, you can literally play six degrees of separation between how things are started. Um, you can, we've seen how, how, uh, sinister humanity can behave towards others we can we've seen it we have documented evidence of of the ways in which people can disregard other people's human rights but yet we're still back in these cycles and so i'm hoping that the work can can sonify that a 
a little bit, but I, I do have worries in that it's also, I'm not trying to make trauma records. I'm trying to make, and, and sometimes I worry about that. Like, ah, oh, you know, all these stories are, they're really traumatic, but I also find a lot of joy in them because I feel like if they did not exist, I, I would not exist. And I, I love my existence so much. You know, I feel very grateful for the things that I've gotten to do and still want to do and 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 sharing this the history that I'm trying to share through these recordings is really inspiring for me but I also have to remember there, there's just a lot of mental splitting that has to go on to to push through the work I guess that's all I'm trying to say sorry that was very long-winded what I I'm extremely impressed is um, the broad perspective or the the, 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 the the scope of ambition. I'm, I mean, I love that you, you know, sometimes you have described it as a kind of sonic biography, you know, that you came up with maybe the conception in 2005. You thought that you might have been finished by 2011, but I mean, that this is a yeah. much more, you know, like a, and that level of, uh, of 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 I, I never encountered such a level on the one hand broad perspective and kind of the courage to incorporate many many different uh, techniques and ways of working but also the, the kind of temporal you know uh, commitment is is I, I'm just like deeply deeply impressed but so I, I guess my question, that it will be how were you able to get the confidence to come up with such a broad approach you know to push things of what is possible to make in a record or record series you know how, how, how were you able to incorporate this kind of different interest and different techniques and different approaches you know how, how were you able to synthesize how I, I think it's so encouraging that uh, that I just would like to get just a glimpse of like that oh. current, that courage well you guys are gonna have me after this interview or I'm gonna walk around with a big head for at least a couple hours. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, courage. I guess I never, uh, that's nice to hear. Um, I mean, honestly, it just, the, the kind of family that I grew up in was just very matter of fact. Uh, you can do anything that you want to do kind of environment. And I, and not a lot of pressure that that thing be a specific sort of thing. But I think I owe my parents a lot for that. I mean, in my home, it was really a chaotic environment, but, um, but in terms of creativity, there was a lot of room for thinking about possibility. And then you combine that, you know, I guess that goes back to Chicago, really. You combine that with the experiences that I had in Chicago, again, with people like Chad Taylor, Josh Abrams, Nicole Mitchell, 
Fred Anderson, uh, Vaughn Freeman, Lynn Halliday, uh, so many people um, were running around who were so supportive of other ways of seeing, I think. And then when I combine that with the negativity that I experienced in some more kind of like conservatory style situations, I think it gave me, I think those experiences were actually really important because it showed me the power of the pushback um, and also the power of, I think criticism is actually really important and an important part of growth, but I think learning that there are different types of criticism, there is criticism that's generative and and there's criticism that is that is just coming from a different kind of place and and as a black child growing up in America I had been exposed and also watched my parents and other members of my family be exposed to criticism that was not generative and learning what the signs of that what is understanding the energy transfer of of criticism that has a lot of hope and possibility for, okay, well, you know, you didn't do that well, but you might want to consider doing it in this way. Or have you ever thought about maybe going in this direction? Or here's what's wrong with what I think you're saying, you know, like, like the healthiness of debate and understanding that there's still agency in trying to figure something out versus the criticism of shutdown. And the shutdowns would be things like, you'll never be able to do anything like that. Or that's just not that's that's just not possible or um you know there's really no hope that kind of criticism really has no merit um in terms of a creative act and i think uh creativity has shown us time and time again um the importance of trying to see something through to see if it works and 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 having an understanding that failure is really just a matter of perspective like what is what does it really mean to fail when when making something out of nothing what do you have to compare it to really so i think i i just I mean, I also, I mean, I grew up in a family also where being an arts making person or be, was not also not. It was encouraged in terms of learning about culture, how to be quote unquote cultured, but it wasn't encouraged as a profession because art making was also seen as a profession of service to whiteness, to white people. Um, to still being into some service realm of entertainment, uh, which seemed to be like an ex acceptable sphere for Black folks in America for so long. Um, so I would not be able to make stuff that would be at this kind of a hold, let's hold their hand inquiry. And I think that's why experimental music spoke to so many possibilities because it requires that our listeners be thinkers. They have to, I'm asking people to engage with 
narrative that is difficult, sounds that are difficult, and to kind of move through those sonic journeys with me in a way that only certain people would be able to. Not everyone um, is able to do that, but I've also tried to make the work in a way that I want the people who might shy away from the music to have some sort of point of entry. I have an uncle that every now and then he would say things to me like, you know, you just need to write that hit. And you write a hit, then you can go back to, you know, these weird sounds and things that you're doing. But, you know, just, you know, just be like, be fully entrenched in the genre music that is fully, you know, capitalist driven. And then you can go back to doing the stuff that might not pay the bills and might not, you know, that's really the way to do it. Um, and, 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 and I've seen people try to take that model and, and it's interesting, but it's also, it's so soul crushing to watch that, you know? Um, but I don't know, I don't know if it's courage or if it's courage crossed with a bit of uh, na naiveness, na naivete, naiveness. I never know what is the right word um, because like you said, 2005, 2011, I had it. I was like, yes, and it'll be, and it'll be my little project and I'll be done. And that's, and then I'll move on to other things. And it's literally <laughs> become <clears throat> a, um, a mountain on my back. And I, I say that with a sense of privilege, but it's really, there's a certain amount of mental strength that, I have to engage with in order to push things through in the project. And that's not something I was counting on when I started it. Yeah, we can imagine. And we would love to ask you as well um, about the installation that you did regarding the 6th of January Capitol assault in 2021, because it's an incredibly interesting piece and it was an incredibly far-fetched moment for all of us to watch yeah i you know it's the fact you know growing up in the eras of like reagan bush clinton and going okay reagan i don't really remember so much because i was a kid but I remember watching my parents having to intercept in this way. The Bushes were pretty terrifying. Um, and the Clintons, honestly, terrifying too. And going, okay, this is as terrifying as it's probably going to get. Only to watch someone like the last president, the, someone like that being nominated and, and also winning an American presidency was such a shocking moment to me. And, and, and in the same way with, uh, I remember when Bush Jr. was elected and going, oh, okay, well, how bad is it going to get? It can't get that bad. It'll, you know, it'll be in and out. Well, no, then 9-11 happens, right? 
And so, oh, things are about to get really bad and it's just going to be continually bad. The same thing with Trump. I had the same sort of thinking of, okay, well, this guy will be out by October because there's no way he's, you know, he's going to make it through a full presidency and thinking how bad could it could it get the assault on the capitol that's to say that we saw that coming could have seen that coming is a is an understatement of the decade like it's the fervor and the the ways in which his rise in office led to this kind of signaling of the white right and kind of this underbelly of racism that some of us I think thought had been eradicated but a lot of us knew that it had not been um, was very shocking to to experience and then understanding the violence that set at the underbelly of his entire time in office, you could not but see the ways in which people were going to be riled up if he didn't win, right, of of another term. Um, I think the most shocking thing, it was was like a mix of shock and not shock, of like, ah, you know, we have enough information about this guy and his supporters and the fervor that it's created to know that it's possible this day is going to be very dangerous, right? Only to to understand that the way things work in America is there's always like the inside people who already are, you know, connected to what's going on and are signaling it to happen. Um, as, you know, Donald Trump and his support, his quote-unquote inside political supporters were doing as there were members of Congress who were also involved that were doing. Like, it's it's sickening um, to think about. And when I saw a lot of that imagery, I just... Knowing what I know about the country that I was born, watching his supporters, watching these people climb the walls of the Capitol... And understanding that if those folks, if those were black people climbing the walls, they'd all be dead. Like it, it, it was, it just really was a shock to my system. So that work is, is a bit about um, the shock and the violence and the, you know, America is a very violent country. There's no um, if, ands, or buts about it. I'm, I'm positive we can uh go online within the next few days and read about another mass shooting or another you know sort of situation of that nature america and their guns is like a you know it's built into this sort of patriotic bent but yet no one ever talks about the history of that patriotic bent and how you know the founders weren't talking about assault rifles they were talking about muskets you know they weren't talking about um this sort of mass uh, violence of quote-unquote citizens, though they were signaling signaling the mass violence and decimation of indigenous peoples. That's a whole other conversation. 
Um, I just wanted to, you know, the, the work that I do in gallery space, the work that I do in like institutions, institutional art spaces has a lot to do with current events because the coin coin work has so much to do with past events. And so I tried to divide it in that way. Um, but I also divide it in a way that allows me to process some of the things that I'm seeing that, you know, the shame I felt when I saw that, but also the expectation of, oh yeah, this is a very American moment right here. Like, look at this, like, this is, this is America right here. This is, this is what it is. And, um, the entitlement that you saw on that, like, it's, it's everything, that moment was everything personally that I worry about as a traveling person engaging in other places, going through my head of like, right, Americans, like we're loud, we act entitled, we have like these weird expectations of, you know, what we're supposed to have and what we're so, our filter is so, if we haven't seen other parts of the world, our filter is so closed, <laughs> closed to what we've been told, what we've quote unquote have been taught, um, the indoctrination of the sort of kind of American nationalism and uh, patrioticness that is a hard, it's a hard thing for me to even synthesize because the stories that I tell in Coin Coin, for instance, are, could not have been made possible anywhere else to me in terms of the detail of that I'm digging into. I take a lot of pride in that, in, in understanding that the freedoms fought for me were fought by a very specific kind of costs that are very connected to that land, right? But it's... Uh, I also know that the stories that I'm telling are relatable to other peoples, no matter where they come from, because we all have experiences as humans of just understanding the different terrain of emotions that you go through um, in any sort of experience. And that, you know, for all of us sitting here, for instance, we represent, our existence represents someone taking a risk for us, right? So the January 6th moment was just, it seemed like all that was front facing about quote unquote, American privilege, American democracy, American, uh, you know, quote unquote, civility. I mean, it really just put on the, it just it was a really good reminder of also um, a certain kind of American imperialist aesthetic around the treatment of the haves and the have-nots. Well, you know, this is our country. We're here. And we, you know, this is... It's, you know, Trump um, really ignited people who felt forgotten in the political process, one. Um, but again, he also ignited... Again, what I was talking about earlier, the lack of information and knowledge that are spread in 
the class system of where people are working from um, information that's either completely outdated or that was com- that completely had a, a format of racism at its core, right? And and that's how they're sort of moving through the world and they're part of communities that are moving through the world in the same way. Well, you have other people who are who've gotten a more kind of updated version, but still missing information. You know, Americans are not taught about uh, so much. I mean, there's just so much that just never gets spread around unless you're engaging in certain circles. And those circles are usually uh, connected to the class system. And, and what you saw January 6th were just... It was just madness. And so I felt like I wanted to create something that would connect to that moment for me as I tried to process, how do you explain, how, how am I going to explain this? How do I talk about this? How do I release some of the shame that I feel as an American artist, getting having the privilege to engage with people in other places? Um, while this, you know, evidence exists of how backwards my country remains and will remain uh, past my lifetime. I, I just don't see what we saw in the rise of Trump. I just don't see what we saw eradicating itself anytime soon. I, I see it getting, it's going to get progressively worse. And I'm terrified. Um, for the next election cycle. Yeah, so precisely because you talk about yeah, the ignorance in the USA. But um but you've been teaching also quite a lot. I mean, that's, you know, we 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 met uh, we have met once before, but like we also met at uh, at Bard College. Um yeah. How you know, as a teacher Do you feel that you need to, you know, the, that maybe you encounter, you know, students who also are, you know, maybe ignorant about certain aspects about, you know, the history of the, you know, uh, of, 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 uh, of USA, you know, like do, how, how do you reconcile, like being a teacher, having the possibility to broaden the, you know, the, the, the perspective of maybe people that, They might have a limited knowledge around certain issues, you know. Ha, ha, but then, you know, it's an art school, so it's a, you know, I guess it's, it's. I mean, in an art school, you get a bit of art history, but you know, it's not that you, you get the his, the way that you get history is in an extremely fragmented way. So, yeah, I wonder how you you deal with this as a, as as your when you are a teacher or when you are teaching about how you fulfill that kind of ignorance that the students might have. That's interesting, but you know, because Bard, so I, I'm part of the Bard MFA uh, program, which is part of the larger Bard College in upstate New York. And, but the MFA program, like I've always put kind of teach in quotations for that program because It's an experimental um, 
eight week, three summer MFA, which requires more, <coughs> it's kind of more, I feel more of like a art coach, not so much as a educator in a sense, where I'm just visiting studios and really trying to focus formally on what it is I see and really trying to stay away from um, I personally, just as a matter of survival, have always tried to stay away from getting to know my students on a personal level, on having, trying to have some understanding of, unless it's very apparent that there's, and that apparent, those, those apparent moments would be, would happen in the way that maybe they would treat me. If I noticed something like that, mm -hmm. then okay, we were going to have a conversation because I cannot engage with someone who I feel maybe sees me as some sort of less than based on my own background or front-facing presentation. Um, I'm lucky that that has never happened to me at Bard. I've experienced that in a couple other places. And, and you know, sometimes that's a mix of it's a mix of isms, like a, there's a racism, a sexism, a, um, different sorts of ways that that can roll itself out. But I, at Bard, for instance, my, my inclusion in that community is really important for those students to see. Um, that community is still not as inclusive as it should be. And I think it will change. Uh, this is actually my last summer with them. Um, it's... It's difficult. And I... But, the you know, it's the same way thinking about the music. Like, I... One of the things that was very difficult about being on social media, for instance, is I felt like... I had to remember that many different types of people listen to music, even experimental music. Like sometimes people who listen to experimental music do not carry the same political ideology that I do, or, or do not carry the same sorts of focus that I do. They've entered into the work for different reasons, and I want to appreciate them, but I can't. I have to protect myself also in, in becoming a, I, I remember, um, who's the writer? Uh, Roxane Gay used the term social justice mule. I think about that all the time where I'm not trying to become that for the listeners or the seers of the thing. I want them to be able to form their own opinions. So with students, I guess I try to think a lot about that, like making sure that I'm making sure I'm not cutting myself down while also trying to present a different perspective, but also leaving room for them to grow in however it is they're supposed to grow, you know? Um, but you guys know, like it's, there's an exchange of energy that happens. 
and you can sense when things are when something actually really needs to be focused on in a way that's beyond the making uh, I feel very privileged in that in my t I've been at Bard for 10 years a little over 10 years 10 summers um, that has been a very rare experience where I've had to oh okay this person is you know and and the New York art world is so has so many problems I don't even know where to begin there um, in terms of understanding that you have people who are doling out these opportunities for art making that actually don't really have a true understanding of perspective of different perspectives or making room for for different perspectives and um, I've I've seen many students of color come into the program for instance and having to really battle that you know in terms of thinking about their future outside of the program and trying to create allyship that that is possible um, with some students but not possibly possible with all it's uh, it's a really difficult difficult thing that I'm still trying to learn um, I wish I could just make records I could make records and tour that's all I really want to do and, <laughs> yeah. and being pulled into these institutions I'm so grateful to some of them but it's also so weary because it's like I don't want to be pushed into a kind of academic um, ivory tower sort of situation where I'm no longer engaging with the reason the people the community the reason that I was trying to play music in the first place. And so, or become like some of the teachers that I came in touch with in my development who told me things that just were not true. You know, how to find the balance there I'm still struggling with.